0: All right, welcome to Parenting with Purpose, 10 weeks on that important subject, and the Bible has much to say about it. We'll be introducing that, but before we get into the content of this class on parenting, I wanted to mention there are two other classes going on right now, so you may be in the wrong class. This is Parenting with Purpose, but there is a class on 2 Corinthians that's happening at the south part of the building, so you'll go out those doors or these doors and go that way. And you will find them. So we have offering that for those who are not parents or not interested in being parents uh, or your parenting has uh, already happened. You're in the grandparenting uh, phase, perhaps. And then we also have a second, another a third class going on for our young adults, uh, ages 19 through 25. That's our Crossroads Young Adult Ministry. And that's going on in one of the adult classes outside this door right across the hallway. So if you fit into either of those two categories, young adult, crossroads, or you're just not interested in parenting for whatever reason, then the Second Corinthians class is down that way. But this is parenting with, with purpose. And you should have a set of notes. Everybody has that then. And it has a course description that we begin with. And you see under the course description, we say it is often said that parenting comes with no instruction manual. So what happens is we become parents, and we may think we're prepared. And in a sermon a few weeks ago, I introduced it by talking about the meticulous preparations that my wife and I had made for years for our first child. And then that very first night, we realized we were not quite prepared for all that was going to happen. So there is some truth to that statement, that parenting comes with no instruction manual. But I also say here that it's strange that we spend years training for careers, pursuing our enjoyments, but many enter parenthood with little conscious thought given to one of the most important tasks on earth. So although you can't be completely prepared because you don't know everything that's going to happen in parenting, what's surprising is how few of us give conscious thought to much of any preparation for parenting. And this class is designed to help us do some of that, and even if we are already parents, to help us see some things that we can do in order to parent in a way that is productive, productive because it meets the purposes of God that we will talk about in this first lesson. In the middle of that paragraph, I say God has established the family to be the crucible in which we learn of him, of his world, and how to interact with creation, both people and things. And God has indeed given an instruction manual in the pages of Scripture to guide us in raising our children in what the Bible calls the training and instruction of the Lord. So this class, Parenting with Purpose, is going to do a couple of things. We're going to survey what the Scriptures say about why God has given us children and then how we're to go about that task. And in the process of doing that, looking at what God says about why he invented the family and why he has given us children and looking at some of the practicalities of how we go about that. In the process, I say here we're going to touch on all aspects of family relationship, of what real love is, of what communication requires, forgiveness and so on so that all may benefit from our time together. So even if you don't have children, Uh, but you're married, you're going to find some things about the role of a husband and a wife and marriage and communication and all of that in this class. Even if you're someone who's not yet married, but God may have that for you in the future, then this will be good preparation for you. And, of course, for parents, all of this will be relevant. So here are some of the topics that we're going to look at. You see bullet pointed there, God's purpose for the family, communication within it, the relationship between marriage and parenting the roles that God has given within the family for husbands, wives, and children, that there are three broad phases of child development, and we'll look at each of those and some of the things that need to be instilled in our children in each, and then how to handle discipline matters and others. Now, I've got some recommended resources here, and I'm not going to go through those now because as we go through the class, I'm going to allude to some of those, and make mention of some particularly recommended ones that will be relevant to matters that we, that we discuss. So if you'll turn to page one then. Page one in your notes. And you see lesson one, this first lesson is titled Stability in the Midst of Change. We live in a day of unprecedented change. It's been estimated that with the advent of the internet and cable and other technologies, that the amount of available information doubles every five years. So we are faced with information overload. We get so much information, but how do we weed through what's good advice and what's useless advice or what's just neutral advice? And faced with this information overload, many parents feel almost helpless in attempting to sort through all the opinions and advice with which we're bombarded on a daily basis. How does one determine a course of action in the midst of of all of these overwhelming decisions and choices. To what or to whom should we turn for advice? I would just make this case to you, friends, that there is a great difference between knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge or information, data, is one thing. And in our day, anyone can have access to those, internet, cable, and so on. You can find instructions on how to build an atomic bomb, if you look on the Internet. You can find data and information, gain knowledge on just about anything. But wisdom is the application of what you know. Wisdom is the ability to appropriate and put to use the information that we have. And that requires something beyond, then, just vehicles to give us facts. Something beyond cable and internet. And that something is a communication from God, thankfully, in the Bible. God has given us the Bible as a source of wisdom. So that we can sort through what's most important and make application according to the design that God has given for the family and for children. So in this first lesson, I say in that second paragraph, we're going to briefly examine some of the many changes that have taken place in our culture that have impacted the way in which families function. Having surveyed the landscape, we'll turn to the scriptures, the source of direction and stability, to help us chart a course for the most important and exciting journey of our lives. Now I say important and exciting. Most of you know me, some of you do not. So I will introduce myself. Ken Brown, I'm the pastor of the church here, and I've been married to my wife Kim, who is in here at the back at the middle aisle. For 31 years we've been married. I know we don't look old enough to have been married for 31 years, but believe it or not, we've been married for 31 years. And God has blessed us with two daughters. Those daughters are 21 and 18. So we have just about raised our daughters. They are into young adulthood, but they both still live at home, and they are both uh, going to college, one in her junior year at Eastern, and the other as a freshman, just started uh, uh, two weeks ago at uh, Wayne State. And it has been, indeed, a privileged uh, and exciting journey for us. And God has taught us much, mostly from his word, but also by experience, good experience and bad experience, and some of that I'm going to be imparting to you as as we go. So I'm letting you know that we are fellow travelers with you, that we are parents, have been parents, and we are still parents. And further, as we're going to see as we go along in uh, our course together, that even when our children are grown, we remain parents. Now, the relationship changes according to the Bible, and so that's good and proper, particularly if our children, as they marry and they establish their own homes. But we are still their parents, still in relationship with them, and still guides for, for their lives. And so when I say important and exciting, that is something that I say not just in the abstract but something that we've actually experienced, and I'll share with you some of our experiences as we go. So in this unprecedented kind of change that has gone on over the last few generations in our our country, uh, it has put pressures on the family, and that's what I say on page one. Pressures both external and internal. The external pressures include uh, an economic shift that, has occurred in our country. And here's what I mean by that. Prior to the Industrial Revolution, the American economy was primarily agricultural. As a result, due to the demands of an agrarian lifestyle, families were larger and they stayed together of necessity. And then our industrial and now service economy has had a number of corresponding effects on the family. So just stop there and think for a moment. What it was like back in the day, if you lived at a time when you were on the family farm, and you had uh farm hands that were primarily uh family members. And so people were together uh, of necessity, they worked together, they lived together, they even stayed together generationally. When I was a kid, we used to visit uh, my mother's parents. My father died when I was young, but we would visit my mom's side of the family down in Eastern Kentucky, coal mining territory. And it was also uh, an agrarian uh, 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 culture. And my uh, grandfather owned his own little general store right next to his house. And my uncles and my aunts and my cousins all lived within a stone's throw of each other. And I just thought it was the most marvelous thing when I would go there and they all would just come over to each other's houses and they would just walk in and walk out and they would just share things together. And so raising a child in that kind of environment where your parents are there across the road or next door or you've got aunts and uncles who are there to assist you in the task is different than what many of us experience today. And further, uh, even if you today live near your parents, which undoubtedly some of you do, uh, my in-laws, Kim's parents, are members of this church, and they live uh, in the Downriver area. So we're blessed with with that. But even so, many of those parents are not working a- at home. They're not working on the family farm. They're working someplace else. So even then, even if they're in close proximity geographically, you don't have the kind of access that people had back then. So that's a, that's a change. And that's a result of an economic shift. And so I say here extended family relationships are now deemed to be optional. One author says functions that were formerly taken care of within the extended family are now performed by specialized agencies not based on kinship. Functions such as caring for the elderly, one's occupation. For many Americans, the extended family has gradually ceased to perform any function besides that of being a vehicle. Friendship, And so we might communicate on Facebook, and at birthdays we might uh, send a, a greeting or something like that. But in terms of meaningful and functional help from the extended family, that happens for very few families in our day. And as a result of that, then, I say, families are generally less equipped to handle tasks and hardship. Now, with that loss of elders... And relatives who are elders who could be of assistance, that means we've lost things like counsel and practical help from extended family. So a young woman has a child, and she's learning, but her mom is not often right there to to help her with it. Her aunts are not right there to help her with it. That young man does not have his, his father, grandfather, uncles, there uh, to help him. So he loses that counsel and that practical help. And the loss of exposure to adult models for this, that, you know, if the models that you have are just the people that you work with, let's say, and what you talk about at the water cooler in the lunchroom at work, (laughs) what you find is families that are often in shambles, and people are complaining about their kids or complaining about their spouse. And that lack then of exposure to adult models is a loss that many of us have from days gone by. And a premium then is placed on intimacy from a smaller number of, of people. And so you, you find that uh, now, that people can have only a couple of good friends and they're blessed to even have, to even have that. And so families, because of this economic shift and everybody going every which way, can easily, if it's not worked against, can easily lack a sense of community within the family. So your family, as your children grow and they get more independence and they get more stuff that's available to them to do, you can find them with a schedule that takes them away from you and you all away from each other on a regular basis. Families lack the sense of community that used to come with. When was the last time you had dinner with everybody around the table? Now, please understand, I'm not going to say in this class that that's the godly way to have dinner. There's no godly biblical way to have dinner. But I am saying that that was an advantage when you could do that, when everybody could sit around at one time and that was a regular routine for people to share what was going on, to share uh, issues, seek advice, give advice, and so on. And now we don't have that. So it's simply a challenge for us. It's a challenge that can be met, but it is one. So you've got these external pressures, some of them caused by economic shifts, others caused by cultural shifts. And this list could be very long, and I'm not going to elaborate on it much, but when I say feminism, uh, I'm referring to, and perhaps I should have put in the notes, radical feminism. And there's a sense in which I'm a feminist because the Bible uh, teaches a feminist position in this sense, that we are all created equal before God, that we are all made in the image of God, that God recognizes the gifts and abilities of men and women, and he wants to see those gifts and abilities used to their greatest extent, all of that is all stuff that's taught in the Bible. So in that sense, uh, Jesus was a feminist. And things like Jesus talking to a woman in public at a well who was known to have a reputation, a famous story in the life of Jesus, uh, and a Samaritan woman at that who was an outcast according to Jesus people the Jews but he not only speak he speaks with her he speaks with her in in public and that was something that was looked down upon but Jesus valued women and some of his first followers were women the first people to go to the tomb to see that Jesus had been raised and report that to the apostles were were women but i'm talking about radical feminism And that's the notion, the radical and unbiblical notion, that we are equal in all respects. We are equal in terms of our standing before God, in the fact that we are created in the image of God, that we have the same spiritual standing before God as believers in Christ. We're equal in that way, but we're not equal in the roles that God has assigned to us. God has given different roles to men and women, and that doesn't make either one of them inferior, as we're going to see when we, as we move ahead. But feminism says in order for there to be true equality then we have to be equal not only in our essence in who we are but in what we do. And of course in its most uh, uh, extreme uh, form it's absolutely the case that this can never happen. That we will be equal in what we do. That we will never be equal in all that we do. Am I right about this? I think. Right, Like here, like just this. Um, None of you guys are going to have a baby. You know, just to state the obvious, you weren't made for that. So you're not going to be equal in what you do in that sense and in other senses. And I will say this without fear of being sexist, but to sensitive cultural ears, perhaps it will sound that way to you. But the truth is there will there will never be a time, I will predict for you, that you will have a man and a woman start at the same place engaging in the same sport in the Olympics. And the woman wins. That's not because the men are better. They were just made to do different stuff. So you've got women's sports and you've got men's sports. And every now and then you hear about a woman who's trying to break into a man's sport and it makes news. And it's interesting news. It would be interesting to see if she can make the team and be on the team. But the mere fact that it's news shows that it would be an exception if it ever happened. And further, the news is just making the team. Not being in the All-Star game. Not being the most valuable player on a championship team in a man's league. We are made differently. Androgyny. It's a fancy term that means the mixing of male and female and we are seeing that in its most extreme form now in our culture uh in terms of uh same sex identity and bathroom laws and so androgyny now the mixing of male and and female has uh, created confusion in our culture about what it means to be a man what it means to be a woman but God's not confused about any of that, and we will see that as we go. Divorce obviously is a challenge to raising children and to family life. When a family is broken up, the children are affected. Every study shows every study shows that children are always better off when there is a, a father and a mother who love them in the home. Now for those of you that are divorced, those of you that are single parents, that's not certainly not a, a slam toward you, uh, no matter why you're divorced. And it may well not have been your fault, and even if it was your fault, it's where you are. And God takes us where we are and He instructs us where we are so that we can so that we can move ahead. But divorce certainly puts pressure on a family and upon parents. The sexual revolution creates problems for families, including things like uh, the delay in the age of marriage. Uh, The the average age for for marriage now is 27. And that has increased by several years, just in the last uh, uh, 30 years. Now, one of the reasons for that is, just to be perfectly blunt... That one of the benefits that was that used to be exclusively thought of in terms of marriage, namely uh, sexual relations, is now in our sexualized culture and in the sexual re- as a result of the sexual revolution is now available, without the the benefits or, as many people see it, the chains of marriage. And so, because of that, marriage itself is affected. And then, even when people do get married, that kind of sexual activity that's gone on before marriage is brought into the marriage and I counsel people so I know it creates all sorts of all sorts of issues cultural shift that affects us through feminism androgyny divorce sexual revolution and then cohabitation that is living together and there was a time when uh, that would be called living in sin That would be called shacking up. But in our day, it's perfectly acceptable for folks to cohabitate rather than marry. And now, what does that teach? What does that look like to any children who might be involved in that that relationship? So there are external pressures. And then top of page two, there are internal pressures as well. Our culture is increasingly individualistic and secular. And the absorption of those values adds additional internal pressures to the external pressures that were cited above so all i'm saying there is we live in a day when people are taught and we've been taught and children being raised as if it is all about you and you're number one and when you try to live as a family with that kind of attitude and you have uh, children being raised that way and you have parents who have been raised that way then it's going to create clashes that put more pressures on the family So the family today has pressures, stability in the midst of change, and those are the kinds of changes that have been happening. But then we want to ask ourselves, what is the purpose for, the purpose for the family? So let me ask it uh, of you this way. What is, do you think, the most dangerous thing facing us in 2016? So what is the most dangerous thing facing us in 2016? And you could list all sorts of things. You could list false philosophies of life, secular humanism, hedonism, materialism, or lack of security and terrorism. So what is the the greatest danger facing us? But I would suggest to you that the most dangerous thing that is facing us is to not understand our purpose and pursue it. That many people have no idea why they are here as individuals, let alone why God has given them a family to, to raise. And without that foundational understanding of what the purpose for who you are as an individual is and then what your marriage and family are to be about, then we're not going to be able to function as God intended. And that, I would suggest to you, is the most dangerous thing for us, is to not understand and pursue why we are here and why God has made us families and parents. Now, there are lots of purposes that could be suggested. And I have some of them listed for you here. Popular purposes. Domestic tranquility. So, one of the reasons that we are parents, it is said, is so that we can create stability Uh, in a stable environment so that our children see that kind of stable environment and uh, they don't engage in the the kind of violence that a child who's otherwise unattended uh, would engage in and does engage in. When you have communities, as we do, we have communities in our culture where there's a 70% rate of fatherlessness. 70%. And in those communities... They are the most violent communities we have, and it stands to reason that boys in particular who are not raised with fathers and don't have that kind of stable model in front of them are going to, are going to do what boys do, namely break stuff, but they're going to break stuff without any restraint or little restraint. And so one purpose is domestic tranquility. Another is to produce productive members of society or just for individual happiness. Those are all purposes that might be suggested, but what's God's purpose? And you see what I say there. The family is intended by God to be his primary learning community. The family is the ideal place to learn of God and his world. And here's why. Life goes on in the family. Family life is not like a classroom that can just be abstract. The family is a place that's filled with the stuff of life. I'm going to talk about that uh, in, just, in just a little bit, some more. But just now, the, for now, just the proposition that life is lived out in the family, and this is real life in the family. You're right now sitting here, and you're engaged in fake life. You don't look like right now what you often look like at home. We're all thankful for that. But when we go into public, when we go into our classrooms at school, when we go into work, when we go into, go into church, we've got a different we've got a different mask on. We've got a different persona. Uh, very often, something different than what our family members see. Our family members see us at our most vulnerable. They see us at our most tense. They see us in the real stuff of life. And it's a place where it is difficult to impossible to put on the kinds of airs that we can put on in other kinds of settings. So that's why I say that life goes on in the family. And it's not like other settings. It's not in the abstract. It's filled with the stuff of the stuff of life. So God's purpose for the family. The family is intended to be God's primary learning community because it's this ideal place to learn of God in his world. Life goes on in the in the family. So I say under B that God's purpose is for it to be this primary learning community. But why is that? Well, life goes on in, in the family, but also B, God sweats the uh, the small stuff. The little things matter. That God loves you enough to reveal things in the mundane. We live in the mundane and therefore, if he does not rule you in the mundane, he does not rule you at all. So we can dismiss the family and the argument you had or the tension that you had this morning before you came here. But you shouldn't do that. Because God is making something known in those relationships in the family, even in the small stuff that we tend to dismiss. It's designed to be this incubator where we learn. We learn about God. We learn about ourselves. We have our hearts revealed. And those so-called little things matter. And it's a matter of God's love for us that he loves us enough to reveal things in what otherwise we would consider to be the mundane. Now, let me give you a little bit of biblical history here, and we'll move on. But some of you know the story uh, of the Bible, and the story of the Bible includes the people that God had chosen to carry out his work in his world, called the Israelites, God's chosen people. Now, that's sometimes misunderstood to mean that all of the people who were Israelites were chosen by God to go to heaven. And the truth is, not all the Israelites going going to heaven. Not all of them actually had a relationship with God. But they were chosen by God, not that all of them by virtue of being born into a particular lineage are going to go to heaven, but they were chosen by God to be the vehicle through which he's going to carry out his plan. And in the first part of the Bible, it lays out how God chose a man named Abraham and his descendants were going to be this nation and these people through whom this would happen. And ultimately, the Messiah, the Savior, came through that line, Jesus Christ. But in the first part of your Bible, it tells us the story of how they variously obeyed God or disobeyed God. And at one point, they are enslaved for four hundred and thirty years in Egypt. And if you've never read the story in the Bible, perhaps you've seen the movie, the Ten Commandments. And Moses, Charlton Heston, leads them out. And uh, for 40 years, they wander in the wilderness before they finally come to the land that God promised to Abraham, Abraham hundreds of years before, and then they cross over and they take the promised land. I bring all that up to you for this reason. As you read that story, you find that the first generation in the promised land grew up as virtual pagans. The first generation to inhabit the promised land, uh, that's the way they that's the way they grew up. As virtual as virtual pagans. They did not know the Lord and did not know what he had done for Israel. In the past, and his mighty deliverance from from Egypt. Now, what went wrong? Is it the priest's fault? That is, to put it in our day, the the church's fault that they didn't know that? Was it the government's fault that they didn't know that? Was it the school's fault? And in Deuteronomy chapter 6, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, God gives the antidote, the answer to that. The way our children are going to know about God and about God's mighty works is because their parents recount that to them. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. And so that's why we say the family is meant to be God's primary learning community. The most significant things that need to be known about life and about God and about ourselves are to be learned in the the family. And that's a, a learning community That we, as parents, are responsible to lead. The state can't do it, and the church can't do it, and the school can't do it. Those of you who are educators know what I'm talking about. You get those students, and they don't come from homes that are doing that, and your job is nearly impossible. So no one can replace the job that God has assigned for you to do in being the primary educators in the learning community that is the family. And so we say in your notes, the middle of page two, the family is therefore meant to be the laboratory for the study of God. Now remember this or or know this. You can't understand anything apart from God and his plan. The great John Calvin said, there's no knowing that does not begin with knowing God. When I say you can't understand anything, I, I don't mean you can't be good at your job, obviously. You can't pass a test. I don't mean any of that. But what what is meant by this is you can't know why you have that job. Why are you here? What's the end game for that? What's its purpose? And apart from knowing that, then you can't truly understand anything. You can do lots of things. But you can't truly understand anything apart from God and His plan. And so we as parents have to have an educators' mentality. And as educators in our home to teach our children about about God and model his purposes before them. Our objective is not just that they would get good grades. It's not just that they could play multiple instruments and learn skills like that, as important as those are. Not just so that we can take them out to a restaurant and corral them well enough so that we're not embarrassed every time we go. Parents, can you relate? Those would be objectives that many people would have, but those are important as they are. They are not big enough. We are to be these educators that teach them about God and then how we, as a family, fit into what God is God is doing. And I say in your notes there on page 2, you are intended to be your child's primary educator. And God has equipped both you and your child to participate in this learning process. So in our final moments, I want to talk about that. How God has made your child, and of course you, Who were once, uh, we who were once children, he has made each of us to be equipped so that we can participate in this learning process. And that's because of the three things I have there that children are revelation receivers. So if you care about parenting from a biblical perspective, this is one of the first things you need to believe and act upon. That your child was made. By God, just like all of us were made by God, your child was made by God to receive revelation from God. Your child was made in the image of God. And that's why your kid, and many of you have had this happen already, depending on the ages of your your children, but you may be somebody who's not a regular churchgoer. This class may be the first time that you've been to church yourself in a very long time. We're very delighted that you're here, if that's the case. So your child didn't really learn directly about God from you. And even if they didn't, here's the deal. The child will ask you about God. Isn't that something? And your child will go, where did all this come from? And they are made with a God consciousness. They were made, designed for that. That's why that happens naturally. And so they were able to receive God's truth. They were made like you with the ability of language and communication. So that miraculously, it's not technically a miracle, but it looks miraculous to us. But in God's good providence and the way he has designed us and made us, that child starts putting concepts together And receiving instructions and processing those and speaking and receiving words. And that was all because God made humanity, unlike all the rest of creation, uniquely in his image to receive his truth, receive his information, to receive revelation. So your children are capable of that, not only capable of that, they were made for that. I'll move on to the next ones here in in just a moment, but... Just think about it this way. If you believe the Bible story, which I hope you do, that God created humanity and God creates humanity. And according to the second chapter of the Bible, God speaks to uh, the first man and woman. And they're able to converse with him from moment one. Now, how are they able to do that? They didn't have to have a discursive process by which they learned about God. Why? Because they were made to know this God. And when this God spoke to them, they knew who he was because they were made to receive that. And all the children of Adam and Eve since, all of us and our children included, are revelation receivers. Secondly, children are interpreters. So they're made with God with this amazing capacity and they're using this capacity to interpret the world in which God has placed us. God placed humanity here to subdue the earth and to rule it on his behalf. And part of that is the ability to interpret this world in which he has placed us. So that means this, your child thinks. Even at the youngest of, of ages, your child is thinking, believe it or not, it may not look like that sometimes, but your child thinks. And he or she is trying to make sense of the world. And you, as this primary educator, are to help him or her make sense of this world. And if you don't, now hear this, somebody else will. If you don't help them make sense of the world, someone else will. They are by nature interpreters. So here's a few examples. A child falls down the stairs. And he's got some toys piled down at the bottom of the stairs. He falls down the the stairs. He hits a, a beach ball or something soft that he has down there. And he interprets that event immediately. And in his interpretation, an angel saved him from getting hurt. That's what he says to you. An angel saved me from getting hurt. Now, isn't that cute? But do you see what he's doing? He's taking something that he learned at Sunday school or something that he learned from, from you, the parent, or, or somebody else about the fact that there is a A spiritual world, not just the physical world. And he's putting beach balls and Sunday school together in his view of the world. He's trying to interpret it. Or, here's another. Kid comes home from school and says, somebody stole my book bag. And you say, how do you know somebody stole it? They say, because it's gone. It's gone. They took it. And then, a little bit later, you find the book bag under some some other stuff. Well, that child's interpreting his or her world. When that event happens, they're putting an interpretation on it. it. turns out to be a false interpretation, but they're interpreting it. And they're interpreting themselves as a victim. In that case, I've been victimized by somebody. They're interpreting the solution, which is they took it. I'm going to get them. Vengeance. Their interpretation brings emotions a frustration. One last example children interpreting. They're constantly doing this as we are. They were made to be interpreters. Child's in the backyard. He's, he's playing with some other kids. And I read this in a, a book by a pastor who is a, a parent. And he also has a, a doctorate in theology. This guy does. And he tells the story of his child playing in the backyard with some other kids. And one of the kids gets a, a rake and swings it around. And his child is running in this direction and this thing hits him right in the head. The handle that hits him right in the head, puts a big gash in his forehead. He's down and he's bleeding. And so the other friends are screaming and they go to the door and the dad goes out there and his child's laying there and he's bleeding and he says his child is just muttering to himself, I'm so glad my dad's a doctor. Now he's interpreting what's going on in his world. I've got a dad who can fix this because he's a doctor. Well, guess what? A doctor of theology isn't going to do you any good. But he's, he's interpreting it, and that's affecting him and whether or not he feels calm about what's going on, or whether, and he's not. He's just saying to himself, I'm so glad my dad's a doctor, and he's, he's calm because of his interpretation, even if it's a false interpretation. And then thirdly, our children are worshipers. Your child, my children, all of us were made to be worshipers. We were made by God in his image. We were made for him and we were made to worship him. And so we're made with a God consciousness. And it's not those friends who worship God and those who don't. The issue is, who are we going to worship? Everybody was made to worship. Your child is going to worship something or someone. The question is not, will they worship? The question is, who or what will they worship? All right, so the family is designed to be this primary learning community. And then lastly, these last two, the family is intended to be a sociological community. Not just an educational learning community, but a sociological community. And that's because in the family, children are required to live with people they didn't choose. (laughs) They didn't choose you. They got to live with you. And so now they have to learn in the sociological community that they didn't choose how to to live with them. And if you have other children, they didn't choose those, those other children either. And so it exposes things about us, both good and bad. It exposes our selfishness. It exposes our need to be commanded and empowered to love your neighbor as yourself. But that's a power they don't naturally have. And so God has to give it, which brings us to the last thing. The family is intended to be a redemptive community because in that learning community and in that sociological community where it's revealing things about us and it's revealing things and exposing things about our children, then you and they are going to fail. You and they are going to sin. You and they are going to do it wrong. You and they are going to expose our selfishness. And when that happens, now redemption, from a biblical perspective, needs to take place in the family. They need to learn then how it is that we ask, seek, and grant forgiveness from one another. How we reconcile broken relationships with one another. The Bible teaches us how to do that. God empowers us to do that. But in the family, our children have to learn how that happens. It doesn't mean overlooking it. It doesn't mean doing what my mom tried to do, and my mom was wonderful. But my mom's solution when things went wrong was to always even it out. So my brother, my younger brother, two years younger than me, who would do something to instigate a problem between the two of us. By the way, it was always his fault. And he would instigate this This issue, but it wasn't always his fault, obviously. But when it was his fault, and he would instigate this issue, and then we're fighting, we're yelling, we're arguing, and then my mom would come, and even if he would admit on the occasions when he didn't lie about it, and he would admit that it was him, my mom, instead of just handling it in a biblical way, and having him seek forgiveness and have reconciliation happen, she would remind me I'm not perfect either. Well, you've got your problems too. And then the whole time I'm thinking there's no justice in this world. I'm interpreting my world, and my interpretation of my world is even my mom is unjust to me. I'm a victim in my own household. So learning what reconciliation looks like, true forgiveness and redemption looks like, is something that's to take place in the family. Now, last thing. You can't give what you don't have. So see mom and dad or would be mom and moms and dads. That's a tall order to be a learning community, a sociological community, a redemptive community. It's a tall order, but the ability to do that comes from the God who made you and made your children. But you can't give to your children what you don't have yourself. So if you don't have a relationship with this God who made your children, then you're not going to be able to give what we're talking about here. Now we're going to pray in just a moment. We're going to be done. But as we go through this series, I'm not going to pressure you, but I'm going to instruct you and I'm going to urge you that if you don't have a relationship, a personal relationship with the God who made you, And none of us comes into this world with that relationship. All of us comes into this world with our tendency to sin and go our own way. That's why all this stuff happens in the family. That's why it has to be a redemptive community. We personally have to be redeemed. We personally have to be reconciled to God. And failing that, you're not going to be able to give your children what you don't have yourself. So if we're going to know what our purpose is in parenting and that's the title of this class Parenting with Purpose and if we're going to achieve that purpose then it means we're going to have to have a relationship with the God who gave us the family who gave us our children and who seeks to have his purposes fulfilled in it so we're going to bow and pray here in just a second and when we do those of you who are parents those of you who are married those of you who are asking God to provide either or both of those Let's thank God. Let's ask Him about those requests. But then any of you who came into here without a relationship with God, this is a moment where you can have that. And where you can pray as we bow from your heart to God in your own words, God, I recognize that I've been going my own way, living for my own purpose. And I've been using the stuff that you have given that's come from you, and I've been using it for my own purposes. Family is from you. Children are from you. My very life is from you. And in doing that, I have sinned against you. I ask you to forgive me. I believe that you came and paid the penalty for my sin on the cross. And then you're reconciled to God. And now you practice that reconciliation, that redemption on a regular basis in your relationships. And that's something then that you can teach to your children in that learning community that is the family. Let's bow together. Our Father, we thank you for the gift of family. We thank you for the gift of children. Lord, we believe that we are made in your image, and the children that you have given us or will give us are made in that image as well. Lord, we thank you that humanity alone among your creatures, has this privilege of representing you in your world and subduing your world on your behalf. Lord, it is a great privilege, but it has great responsibility. And you have called us to pass this on to each generation so parents are to communicate who we are before God to their children. So, Lord, thank you for that privilege, but, Lord, it weighs upon us that it's such a responsibility. We can't do it apart from your enablement thank you for the enablement that we have from the instruction in your word and from your holy spirit when we have a relationship with you i thank you for allowing me to have a relationship with you not because of me but because of your grace given to me i thank you for the lord jesus christ who allows me to be reconciled to the god against whom i and all of us have sinned and i pray lord that every person here either has that relationship with you or it's being established right now in this sacred moment. That there are some who from their hearts right now are recognizing that they have lived without purpose or for their own purpose and apart from you. And That they recognize that you have given these good gifts and that they have sinned in misappropriating those gifts, misusing those gifts. And so Lord, I pray that they're calling out to you and seeing that Jesus did what they could not do and paid the debt for their sin and asking you to be their God and grant them a relationship with you. And then, Lord, on that basis, may we pass on to our children what you've given to us. Help us in the nine weeks ahead to see what you say about ourselves, about marriage, about our roles and about the blessed task of being parents. Go with us this week. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.